Let's turn to our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is sort of fashionable these days for many, even those who would describe themselves as evangelical Christians, to treat lightly or even dismiss the historicity of Adam and Eve. In fact, today, many a biblical scholar claims that the first three chapters of Genesis are purely mythical. But why is it important that you and I accept the biblical record of Adam and Eve as literal persons and not regard them as mere myths, as mere metaphors? It is important because, you see, if Adam and Eve were not real persons, as the Bible indicates, then you and I really would have no basis for believing, among other things, that man was created in the image of God. Because that's what the Bible says. That the entire human race descending from Adam has been impacted by the malady of sin as the Bible, the Word of God, asserts. What this would ultimately mean is that we could not truly believe in the reality of God's saving grace in Christ toward unsaved humanity. If creation, as recorded in the Word of God, if Adam was not a literal person, if creation did not take place as God said it did, then of course there's no basis for human redemption. We could not truly believe, as I said, the doctrine of God's saving grace in Christ towards unsaved humanity, bearing in mind that in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, our Lord Jesus Christ as man is presented as having his lineage going all the way back to Adam, the head of the human race. In fact, you'll notice there at the end of that paragraph, verse 38, Adam is mentioned. And Jesus, of course, is traced back to Adam. 
He's traced back to Adam, the progenitor, the head of the human race. If it were not the case that Adam was a real, literal, historical person, then it means that the incarnation would be a farce, it would be a massive hoax, and there would be no salvation. Indeed, Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and verse 6 implicitly acknowledged that Adam and Eve were real, literal persons. And here in our text, we see Paul affirming as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 45, as well as 1 Timothy chapter 2, 13 and 14, the historicity of Adam as a literal person, one who was created by God. In this passage, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul resumes by way of conclusion the subject of justification which he had been treating from chapter 3, verse 20, right on to chapter 4 and verse 25, the question as to how guilty, spiritually dead sinners are deemed righteous by God. From the opening statement of chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, followed by a catalog of other blessings that derive from justification by faith, it appeared that Paul had concluded his teaching on this subject. And why we say that, because if you look at verses 12 through 21, and particularly how he begins verse 12, it does not appear, there does not appear to be a logical causal connection between this paragraph and the previous paragraph. In verses 12 through 21, Paul then is actually bringing his discussion of the subject of justification to a grand finale. And to bring us into a deeper appreciation of God's saving, justifying work, of putting sinners right with himself, Paul in this paragraph gives us a quick synopsis of redemptive history informing us as to how it was in the first place humanity fell into the misery and guilt of sin, thus necessitating God's redeeming grace. And so the title of the message this morning is The History of Redeeming Grace. This, I believe, is Paul's thought in this passage. I believe this is a thrust of his teaching in this passage. And related to the history of God's redeeming grace, we see, first of all, in this passage, the history of sin, the history of sin. How it was that sin made its way into the world. In the A part of verse 12, we learn that sin came into the world through one man. The question is, where did Paul get that information? Well, of course, he got it from the creation account as found in the book of Genesis. From Genesis, we learn that having created Adam, God commanded that whereas he could eat of any tree in the Garden of Eden, there was one particular tree he should not eat of, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Should he eat of that forbidden tree, then he would surely die. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Adam, we would say, was being tested as regards, he was being tested with respect to his loyalty to God, his obedience to God. At issue was the question, would Adam acknowledge God as his God, or would he disobey God and yield to the serpent's temptation to be his own God Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. Sadly, following the prompting of the serpent, Adam disobeyed God. We talk about the fall. In Christian theology, we talk about the fall 
Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. They fell into sin. This act of disobedience to God is described in three ways in the passage before us. First of all, it's described as sin. The word sin, along with its cognates, you'll notice, occur at least, it occurs some nine times in these verses. Nine times Paul uses the word sin and its cognates. And the word sin derives from the Greek word hamartia, which means to miss the mark. It was a word that was used in connection with an arrow missing a target. If you ask the question, what is sin? Then sin is missing the target of God's standard of perfect righteousness, of perfect holiness. In scripture, sin is the generic word for all that stands contrary to the will and character of God. And so, 1 John chapter 5, verse 17 says that all wrongdoing is sin. 1 John 5, verse 17, sin is lawlessness. And scripture teaches that before God, every single human being without exception is a sinner before God, that each and every man, woman, boy, and girl has missed the mark, has missed the target of glorifying God. And hence we read in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 11, all are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, some people say, you know, I am not really a sinner because I don't do wicked things, I don't do bad things. Yet the word of God teaches without any kind of qualification that every single human being is a sinner. And here's the point, sin is such a horrible reality in the eyes of a holy God that even one sin is capable of damning souls to hell. The Bible says all have sinned, all have missed the mark, all have missed the target of God's holiness, of God's glory. What it means is this, that even though on a human level some will say this man is better than that man, morally speaking, this woman is better than that woman or that man, morally speaking, here's the truth, before God, every single person having missed the target is a sinner destined for hell apart from the intervening grace, the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Adam's act of disobedience to God is described as transgression. You see that in verse 14, transgression. The word speaks of willful, deliberate violation of God's directive. It is a stepping across of one's assigned boundary. Suggested by the word transgression is a spirit of rebellion, a spirit of brazen defiance against God's will, against God's sovereign authority. The Bible makes it clear that unlike Eve, watch this, the Bible teaches that unlike Eve, Adam in that temptation was not, he was not deceived. Eve was deceived, she took off the fruit, Adam was not deceived What happened then? Adam sinned with his two eyes fully open. 
Adam knew precisely what he was doing when he ate of the forbidden tree, so that in sinning against God, in sinning against God, he did not merely miss the target, he aimed for another target, and that target was the glorification of self, of asserting his own will over against the will of God. Third, Adam's act of disobedience to God. Notice, not only is it sin, and a transgression, but it is trespass, trespass. At our home, we still have a sign at the front. We inherited. It says no trespassing, no trespassing. And we have, we, have, we have let it remain, no trespassing. My friends, here's what sin is. To sin against God is to leave one's divinely assigned boundary and step over into territory that he forbids. Adam, when he sinned against God, when he disobeyed God, Adam trespassed. He left his lane, so to speak. He stepped over into forbidden territory. He wanted to be like God at the instigation of the devil, the serpent, and so he trespassed against God. So the picture we have here is that with Adam's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and he evil, his was not simply a case of passive, innocent failure to follow God's directive. His was a case of willful, brazen defiance against God in which he was determined to take the place of God to be, as it were, his own God. That was the essence of his sin. It was a, it was, it was a missing the mark of truly glorifying God it was a transgression, and it was a trespass. His was a case of revolt and rebellion against the will of God in which he was attempting to achieve, as one man says, Godhood for himself, rather than to acknowledge and submit to God as his God and Lord. Now, if that weren't bad enough, then what's more was the horrific tragedy which ensued. And so moving from the history of sin, we're talking about the history of God's redeeming grace. We have seen the history of sin. Sin is a real thing. Sin is a horrifying reality as expressed in what we now consider as the tragedy of sin. The tragedy of sin. True to God's warning that Adam would die the day he ate of the fruit, the forbidden tree. No sooner had he eaten of that tree than the curse of death began to take effect. And somebody will ask the question readily. In fact, they'll make the claim readily. Well, really, Adam did not die when he ate the fruit, did he? Because he lived for all of 930 years. Did he really die that very day, as God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die? How do we explain that? And the simple answer is this, that in Scripture, death assumes three aspects. There are three aspects to death as suggested by the Word of God. And common to these three aspects of death is the notion of separation. Separation. First of all, there is what we could describe as spiritual death, which essentially is separation or alienation from God. And here's the point. Adam and Eve, the moment they ate, they died spiritually. No, they did not keel over and physically die, but they died the moment they ate the fruit because the moment they ate the fruit, keep in mind what we said is the essence of death, separation. 
The moment they ate the fruit, they were separated from God. You say, what are you talking about? Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Right away, what's that alienation? In fear, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God because they recognized that they were what? Naked. As such, they sensed the loss of God's favor. They sensed the loss of acceptance. They felt unwelcome in the holy presence of God. Let me just say this. When people today run to the psychologists and the, whoever, the sociologists, and they say, I feel alienated, I feel distance, I feel disconnected. That really has the character of death, the very thing that Adam experienced when he disobeyed God. They felt unwelcome in the presence of the Holy God and such sense of distance from God, such sense of dis-ease with the presence of God marks that condition that's known as spiritual death. If you ask the question, why do people crave this, that, and the other? Why do people go after drugs? And why do they go after illicit sex? And why do they enter into this relationship and that relationship? The question is, it is a feeling deep in the human soul of alienation, of distance from the God for whom they were created. It was Augustine who famously said, O God, thou madest us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Now to understand the gravity of such condition of spiritual death, we have to understand that since God is the source of life, since God is the very fountain of life, and here we're not talking about physical life, mere physical life, but of life in its fullness, life in its richness. To be connected to God is to know, is to experience true life in its fullest dimension. It means that when Adam and Eve sinned, listen, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what happened? They became disconnected from the very source of life. The initial result of that disconnection was spiritual death or separation from God. And that is why in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul there suggests that to be spiritually dead, listen to how Paul characterizes spiritual death in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, it is to be separated from Christ and to be without God in the world. According to Ephesians 4.18, it is to be alienated from the life of God. You say, what are you talking about? Here's a person breathing, walking, going, doing this and that, maybe even happy in life. But here's the point. The Bible in Romans chapter 7 speaks of such a reality as being dead even while one is living. We talk about living dead. Now listen, this is sad, sad to say. It's the present condition of every single person who is not a Christian. Every single person who is not a Christian, who has never been saved, who has never been born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, the Bible describes your condition in consequence of Adam's sin as a condition of alienation from God, distance from God, in which you are without the life of God, which is what? Eternal life. And not until one comes to Christ by faith does that situation change, because as our Lord Jesus says, the one, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word, believes in the one who sent me, has eternal life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Second scripture cites the phenomenon of physical death, which essentially is separation of the soul from the body. You see again, separation, spiritual death, separation from God, distance, not having fellowship with God, not having favor with God. Here we now have physical death, which again involves separation. Physical death is separation of the soul, or we would say of the spirit from the body. This aspect of death no one likes to think about, no one likes to talk about it. A most fearsome specter, death as one writer puts it, is that, quote, great black darkness that terrifies humanity and works like a venom through the whole of our souls, showing itself in despair and a limitless variety of fears, end quote. And this phenomenon of physical death was part of the devastating tragedy of Adam's disobedience, his sin against the will of God. And sad to say, that is the condition, or will be the condition, ultimately, of every single human being. Someday, we are going to die physically. The difference, of course, is that those who are saved, as our Lord Jesus says, he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's the hope we have beyond the grave. But here's the point. You are, you and I are going to die someday. We are going to die whether or not we like it, whether or not we are prepared for it. Every single human being, unless the Lord Jesus returns in time, every single one of us is going to die. All because of the sin of one man. The word of God teaches. Third scripture alludes to what may be described as eternal death. So not only is there spiritual death, which is separation from God, physical death, which is separation of the soul from the body, but there is eternal death. You ask, what is eternal death? This will be the lot of every single person who dies outside of Jesus Christ. By not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, one will enter into a state of eternal death. For all eternity, they'll be separated from God in the lake of fire for all eternity. And this is described in Revelation 2.11, Revelation 20 verses 6 and 14, Revelation 21 verse 8 as the second death. That's scary. Listen, my friend, God in grace, God in time is calling men and women, boys and girls, to respond to his call to eternal life. But here's the point. If death seizes upon you without your having come to Christ, without your having been saved, then the word of God teaches you will enter into a state of eternal death where that condition is irrevocable and irreversible. So we have seen in our text the history of sin, the tragedy of sin. Third, we see in our text the heredity of sin and death. The heredity of sin and death. Note the first, first of all, the C part of verse 12. So he's talking about what happened in consequence of Adam's sin. And he says there in the C part of verse 12, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. By the way, anyone who is in doubt as to whether they are a sinner, this verse answers it. Because the question is, being subject to death, and being destined for death, and certainly will die automatically, evidences the fact that one is a sinner. 
And here Paul shows the causal relationship between sin and death, reminding us of what he stated back in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin, he says, came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The verb spread there in the Greek literally means to pass through. And the point is this, that like an infectious plague, death by the sin of one man, that is Adam, was transmitted to his posterity. Sin, as it were, passed through them, spreading through them, spreading through their entire nature, affecting their will, affecting their hearts, their minds, affecting even their bodies. Sin passed through upon all men. That's why we have diseases, that's why we have sicknesses. That's why we have fear. That is why we have all kinds of maladies. So we speak then of the pervasiveness of sin throughout the world and throughout human nature. And it was precisely an account of the hereditary impact of Adam's sins. Why in Psalm 51 and verse 10, the psalmist could pray by way of confession to God. He says there in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's reason why I could say in Psalm 58 and verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth, speaking lies. What is he saying there? The human condition is one of depravity brought on by the ravaging effects of sin, the sin of one man, Adam. We speak not only of the pervasiveness of sin in the world, and in human nature, but we speak also of the universality of death. Death is a reality that's found on every continent, in every country, in every city, in every part of the world, in, among different cultures, different cultures. Everyone dies ultimately. In Adam, the word of God says, all sinned. In Adam, all died. That's a sad, distressing description of the human condition. And as regards the heredity of sin and death affecting every single human being, without exception, Paul, notice Paul makes a point in verses 13 and 14. He says this, that even before the giving of the law, that is, even before God gave the, what we know as the Mosaic law, sin was already a reality in the world, having its source in Adam's transgression. And in support of this point, that sin is in death, he argues that even during the period when there was no law, even when the Mosaic law was not yet given, and sin was not imputed to men as a result of sin, yet men continued to die anyway, proving the point that all are sinners. The implication then is that with or without the law, men and women are at heart sinners. We can actually jump ahead of ourselves because down toward the end of this paragraph, he tells us the function of the law. He says the law was added. The law was given merely to what? The law was given to increase. Romans chapter 5, he says the law was given to increase transgression. That is to say, to make sin as Paul puts it, appear exceedingly sinful, to show us how horrible a sinner we were. That's the, that's the function of the law. But Paul is saying, even before the giving of the law, people were dying, which points to the fact that they were sinners anyway. 
In Paul's words, here's what he says, verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted when there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Somebody asked the question, what does Paul mean when he says those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam? He says even to those, death came. And the point of contrast is this. That whereas Adam sinned in a state of innocence, that is to say, Adam came, Adam was created not, we would say, not in perfection, uh, in the sense of being holy and not capable of sinning. He was created in what um, theologians would say, in a state of innocence. That is to say, he did not know evil. In that condition of innocence, he sinned. What's the difference between Adam's sin and your sins and mine? It is this. We sin with sin natures. We already have a sin nature, and so we sin. Adam did not have a sin nature, and so his sin, his manner of sinning was different from our manner of sinning. He sinned in a state of innocence. We sin having incurred a sin nature from Adam, and we just keep on sinning. That's, that's the idea. And so described in 1 Kings 2 verse 2 and Joshua 23 verse 14, as the way of all the earth, physical death has been the lot of every human being. Since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, people have been dying and will continue to die until Jesus comes. So we have seen in our text the history of sin. We have seen the tragedy of sin, the woeful tragedy of sin, the heredity of sin. Fourthly and finally, we come to the good part this morning. Good news. The remedy for sin and death. The remedy for sin and death. If we didn't close like that, then that would be horrible. The remedy for sin and death. Back in verse 14, we learned that death reigned from Adam to Moses. And my friends, even to this day, as we said earlier, death continues to reign exerting its malevolent, tyrannical power over sinful, fallen humanity outside of Jesus Christ. And really, when all is said and done, at the end of the day, the quest of scientists for a cure with, uh, for diseases and sicknesses, our visits to the doctor, our workouts at the gym, the steps we take to ensure our security, physical security, safety from harm, all boiled down to a matter of staving off the inevitable that will someday come, and that is death. My friends, you could have the best doctor there is in the world. You know this. You could be disciplined at exercise. You could go to the gym morning, noon, and night. You could take your vitamins. At the end of the day, the sobering reality is that we're going to die. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And similarly, there is absolutely no remedy for the plague and curse of death apart from Jesus Christ. As Paul had already established here in the book of Romans, the punitive effects of sin cannot be undone. It cannot be erased by religion. It cannot be erased by morality. Sin cannot be atoned for by our good works. Its power cannot be broken by personal resolve, as Paul will make clear in Romans chapter 7. What is the remedy for sin? What is the remedy for death? 
it is the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death by dying on the cross and being raised on the third day from the dead. It is against this backdrop that Paul presents in verses 16 through 21 Christ as a remedy for man's problem of sin and death. In so doing, he calls attention, notice, to the saving blessings, the saving, redeeming blessings which one man, Christ, brings to dead sinners. In contrast to the ills which the one man, Adam, brought to humanity. First of all, verses 15 and 16, Paul cites the saving blessing of what he calls God's free, abounding grace in Christ. As many as five times in three verses, that is 15, 16, and 17, he makes mention of the free gift. Salvation, my friends, is a free gift. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. You see, the saving gift of God is and has to be a free gift in as much as Christ paid for it on the cross with his own blood such that God offers us this gift when we trust and believe on Christ as Savior. This free gift Paul describes in verse 15. Notice how he describes this free gift. He describes it as the grace of God. He describes it as the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, that abounded for many. In verse 17, this free gift is characterized as the abundance of grace. You see, why is it abundance of grace? Why is abundance of grace found in Jesus Christ, the second Adam? Because here's the point in redeeming us. As I was pointing out to someone this morning, in having redeemed us, Christ went way beyond what Adam would have become had he not sinned against God. In saving us, in exercising his saving grace toward us, he not only addressed our deficiencies in Adam, but he went beyond and he added to us all the glorious prospects of eternity, our being transformed to be like him, having eternal life, living with him for all eternity, that the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of God abounded for many is marked by abundance, attest to its all-sufficiency, attest to its all-sufficiency in addressing the needs of sinners completely, completely. And then notice in verse 21 that this free gift, this free grace of God, he says, reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace of God, you see, is exercised not through compromising God's law, not soft-pedaling God's law, but by honoring and upholding it. Who did that? The Lord Jesus. He did this in his life. He did this in his death. He magnified the law by his life and by his death. And in this way, Grace reigns through righteousness, not at the expense of righteousness. In other words, what we are saying is this. When God exercised saving grace to us, it was free, but it was not cheap. He did not violate his justice. He did not violate his wholeness. That had to be paid for, and it was paid for by Christ in his death on the cross so that He can be what? Gracious to us in forgiving us, in absolving us of the guilt of sin. Now, this free gift, Paul says in verse 15, is not like the trespass. And the implication being that unlike the free gift of life which Christ brings, Adam's trespass 
affected not a gift, but it affected the wages of sin, which according to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 is death. That's what Paul means when he says the free gift is not like the trespass. The trespass affected wages. It brought about wages, the earning of wages, which is death. The free gift is given us notwithstanding our trespasses and our sins. Why? Because Christ paid for them. According to verse 16a, this free gift stands in contradistinction to the condemning judgment of God for just one trespass. Adam's sin, one trespass, and, he, and it spells what? Separation from God. This free gift of God's grace through Christ brings about justification in which sinners are declared righteous. And this free gift of God's grace in Christ is then is that which constitutes the remedy. It is that which constitutes the solution to man's knowing problem of sin. I realize time is gone, so we have to stop here. But here's the point. Paul is going to conclude and he's going to talk about the obedience of Christ. Here was the first Adam. He disobeyed God. Enters the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. What did he do? He obeyed the will and word of God perfectly. He obeyed it in life. He obeyed it in death. He obeyed it even to the point of death on the cross. And the glorious news of the gospel is this, that God takes the righteousness of Christ. He takes the obedience of Christ. And what does he do? He imputes it to us. Not because we work for it, not because we do this and we do that, but because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he takes the obedience of Christ, he takes the righteousness of Christ, he places it to account, whereby he reckons us as being righteous before him. That is the gospel. And that is what we present to you this morning. The message of the gospel is this, stop trying and trust in that grace of our Lord Jesus, the one who died for sins, the one who completely satisfied all the will of God by his life of perfect obedience. The word of God tells us that when we look to him, we trust in him, then among other things, what, he, what does he do? He addresses the problem of our sins. Paul is going to talk about that in Romans chapter 7. Even our struggles with sin, he addresses the problem of death and the fear of death. Why? Because when we trust him, we enter into peace with God and we possess eternal life. What a blessing.